You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 23. Uh, It's going to take us a bit to get there. Uh, We will actually end with the verses that my friend Taryn just read for us. Um, And like many Sundays in this wisdom series, we're going to be in a lot of different passages. But you can turn to Proverbs 23, uh, and I promise we will end there this morning. If you're new here, welcome. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens, and we're glad that you chose to uh, worship with us this morning. If you're watching online, maybe you're doing that for the first time, or you've been doing that for a long time. Welcome. Thank you for for joining us. We're in a wisdom series. Uh, Wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. Uh, Wisdom has a posture. It's low. Uh, We grow wise as we are humble. And so one of the um, kind of ideas that we've tried to confront is this idea that wisdom is about information. Uh, But we all have either experienced this or or know people uh, whose heads are uh, full of facts, but their heart is filled with foolishness all at the same time. So the great need um, is not uh, in response to us being uninformed, because there's many of us who are over-informed and under-changed by what we know. And so wisdom wants to humble us and wants to lower us that we might um, assume wisdom's posture, which is low. Wisdom has a pace. It's slow. We grow wise over time. It's why it's wise to spend over a year as a church in a wisdom series. I'm kind of defending myself, but also uh, we're not rush. Uh, wisdom's not in a hurry. Uh, Wisdom is a person. It's Jesus. We grow wise in relationship with him as his grace changes us as he is this beautiful picture of wisdom personified and invites us to become like him. This morning, we are considering what Proverbs says about envy and jealousy. Uh, They're kind of two sides of the same coin, and we'll see that. But two weeks ago, we were considering what we called the wise spirit and uh, how the wise spirit is slow to anger and hard to offend and quick to bring peace. And as I was studying for that, I came across verses that I thought would make it into the sermon then, but as I dug into them, just realized that they need their own Sunday. We need enough space to be able to understand what they're saying. And part of that is because what happened is something that's happened often in Proverbs is that wisdom speaks about something with an intensity of language that says, this is really serious. And it's more serious than maybe I had previously considered it. So uh, I want to read a couple verses, if you just listen with me to that sober language. Proverbs 27.4 says this, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand? One translation says, who can survive jealousy? It's a a short, profound verse. It's as if wisdom is creating this hierarchy of dangerous emotion. Wrath is devastating. Anger is consuming. But then you have jealousy. And it's like in a class of destruction all on its own. Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy makes a man furious. That word fury means rage. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. Will not spare means there's no mercy It's a jealous rage that's unrelenting. It's a jealous rage that is all gas, no brakes. And it's really intense language. It's serious. It's sobering. Like, more serious than I had thought before studying these passages. I think if I would have written Proverbs 27.4, I would have written it, wrath is cruel, 
Anger is overwhelming. And jealousy is also not great, you know? But it says, who can stand? More destructive in me and you than wrath, more destructive than me and you, in me and you than anger is jealousy. It says, who can survive? Then hear this. Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A tranquil heart means peaceful heart. The idea is that the condition of the heart determines the condition of your flesh. A heart at peace gives life to everything else. And then envy is juxtaposed to that tranquil heart, and envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs does something that I really appreciate. I, I, I love a good image. I love a good story. I love a good metaphor. And Proverbs gives us an image, a physical image, to describe a spiritual, emotional, immaterial reality. Envy makes the bones rot. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of something rotten. What comes to your mind? Uh, what's the last rotten thing that you experienced? Maybe you cut into some fruit or something and the inside was brown or gross or something like that. When I read the word, I thought about one of our trees and what happened to one of our trees last summer. We have a crepe myrtle in our backyard. It's beautiful. We named it Myrtle. Uh, we named our trees um, because we're normal people. And last spring, it got infected. I, I think it's, there's a kind of bug. I think it's called a mealy bug that uh, spreads a kind of fungus on plants and trees. And this bug got in the tree and infected the tree. And the sign of that infection is that the tree began to rot. They had these beautiful pink flowers and they just withered and, and died and fell off. Um, the color of the tree turned, went from green to gray. Uh, the limbs became really brittle. You could just break them off with your hand and inside they were deteriorated. And what happened is, is something is killing the tree from the inside out. It's dying on the inside and the sign that it's infected, the sign that it's dying is that it starts rotting and instead of life, instead of flowers, instead of color, it's withering and it's gray and it's brittle. Something's causing it to deteriorate. Now what if there was something that could do that to your soul? What if something could infect you on the inside and so you start rotting on the outside? It drains your color and makes all the beauty wither. Proverbs calls to mind that image, a rot that happens from the inside out and says there's something that can infect you like that. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Wisdom speaks about jealousy and about envy. Jealousy has a destructive power greater than even wrath and anger. Envy has a deteriorating power that eats away at you from the inside. And something happens for me, friends, when I read verses like these. As, as somebody who is sincerely trying to be a student of God's word before being a teacher of God's word, something happens for me, uh, and it's happened a lot in wisdom, Wisdom warns that jealousy can destroy. Wisdom warns that envy can rot. And what happens for me is I just want to know more. I want to pay attention. I want to see it where it's in me. I want to heed the warning. And I have a long way to go on wisdom's journey. I've tried to be honest about that. There's lots of me that needs to change. There's lots of me that does not yet look like Jesus, the person of wisdom. But at the very least, around passages like this, wisdom has my attention. Does it have yours? Right now, does it have yours? Are these verses that we just read, are they enough to make you wonder? Are they enough to at least incite some level of curiosity in you? 
Like if there is a part of you that's wondering even just a little, okay, is there a kind of jealousy in me that could give way to rage? You're wondering just a little, is there envy in me if left unaddressed could rot out my life? And if you're wondering that right now, I need you to know that is wisdom at work in your life. It's wisdom at work. It means that some part of you is trying to lower, not just hear a sermon, not just digest some information, not just get like a little bite uh, of something that's going to help, you know, that you'll be able to share the rest of the day, but, but it's going past the head and down and trying to lower you in your heart, trying to help us assume wisdom's posture. And I want to help us. God's word wants to help us heed these warnings this morning to help us grow in wisdom around envy and jealousy. And that's going to take on three different movements. Uh, we're going to define it, learn how to recognize it, and learn how to turn from it. Define what envy and jealousy is, learn how to recognize it when it's in our life, and learn how God would lead us to turn from it. So let's define it. What are envy and jealousy? Uh, did you know that they're different? Uh, up until I studied these passage, passages, I would have said that envy and jealousy are synonyms, that they're, uh, to be envious is to be jealous and vice versa. And they're related, but, but there's a difference. And I, I didn't know that. In fact, I went around uh, this week asking friends. I said, hey, did you know there's a difference between envy and jealousy? And all of them were like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> None of them could tell me what the difference was, but they all said that they at least knew there was a difference. I didn't know. It's the same root word in Hebrew, but it's used differently depending on the context, depending on the meaning. So the two Proverbs that we read are a good example. Who can stand before jealousy? Envy makes the bones rot. It's the same Hebrew word, but it's used differently. And I've found that understanding the difference between the two has helped me see them both more clearly, especially in my life. So two weeks ago, I talked about a book called The, the Cry of the Soul. It's co-authored by an Old Testament theologian named Trimper Longman and a Christian counselor named Dan Allender. And they talk about envy and jealousy as two sides. Did I do something wrong? Okay. I always just want to make space that maybe I was about to say something God didn't want me to say. I think we're all right. They talk about envy and jealousy as two sides of dark desire. Uh, both envy and jealousy have to do with our desires, um, and they have to do with what we want. So stay with me as I try to fight for some clarity. They call envy resentful desire. Envy is where uh, I want what I don't have, but not just that, but I resent those who have what I don't. Envy wants someone else's life, or envy wants something that somebody else has in their life to be in my life. So I want a meaningful career that I don't yet have. And if that's you, that's a good desire. It's good to want to use your gifts in a meaningful way. It's good to want to commit your life to doing something that means a lot to you and hopefully means a lot to God. And so that's a good desire. But my desire for a meaningful career that I don't have becomes envy when I resent those who have the meaningful career that I want. When that desire becomes contempt for those who have what I want, that's envy that rots the bones. Jealousy is different. Jealousy is defensive desire. It has what it wants and gets defensive by the threat of loss. So it wants to defend the life that it has. So I have the meaningful career that I, that I want. I love my job. That desire is good. Praise God. But it gets dark. It becomes jealousy when I am defensive toward anyone who could replace me at my job. 
So I am jealous, not for what I don't have, but jealous at the threat that what I do have could be taken by someone else. So envy is resentful desire. I resent those who have what I want. Jealousy is defensive desire. I'm jealous towards those who threaten what I want to keep. We have an example of each in the life of David that I found helpful. I'll start with jealousy. Do you remember the story of David and Saul? Saul is king. David's not yet king. The throne belongs to Saul. It does not yet belong to David. David starts winning battles. David starts getting a reputation. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 7, it says this, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, that's got to hurt if you're Saul to just hear that. That can't feel good. Listen to how Saul responds to it, though. 1 Samuel 18, 8 and 9. Saul was furious and resented the song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained. But they only credited me with thousands. And then listen to the question. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David, what? Jealously from that day forward. You hear that offense. They're singing a song. They're comparing my life to his. It turns into jealousy around the question, what more can he have but the kingdom? What more can he have but my kingdom? What kind of question is that? It's a jealous question. The people had already written the song about how much better David is than Saul, and it went viral. And so Saul says, what I have, David is going to take. And so he watches him jealously. He looks with a jealous eye on him. And then over and again, how does he respond to that? Over and again, what does Saul try to do to David? Kill him. He throws spears at him. He sends armies to hunt him. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? David couldn't. He couldn't stand before Saul's jealous rage. He had to hide in caves because of it. Do you remember the story of David and Absalom? Absalom is David's son. And David, at this point in his life, he has the throne. Uh, he's the king over the kingdom. And there's a lot going on at this point in the story. We're into 2 Samuel now. But everything that's happening in this part of the, of the story is happening in the shadow of David's sin. It's the consequence of his sin. But even still, Absalom resented his father. Absalom wanted his father's throne. But even more than that, he didn't want David to have it. He thought he would do a better job. And he launches a conspiracy in 2 Samuel 15. It describes it in verse 6 this way. Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Who had their hearts? David. David had the hearts of the people. Who wanted what David had? Absalom did. And so he stole them. He revolted against David. He tried to kill him. His own dad. How deteriorated must your heart be with envy to want something so bad you're willing to kill your father for it? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You see the difference? Saul's jealous of David. He threatens what Saul has. Absalom envies David. David has what Absalom wants and resents David for having it. Jealousy is a defensive desire, tries to protect. Envy is a resentful desire. It holds people in contempt for having what I want but don't have. Now take a moment. This is really important. We need to see something about God in light of that distinction. 
Which word between the two is used to describe God? Jealous. Great job. You're so smart. If you're in our Exodus study, you'll get to this passage in a few weeks. In Exodus 34, 14, it says, For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. And, and uh, by our dinner table, we had a, a poster that had all the names of God. It was right next to the, uh, the Feet in the Sands poem. And so we had the, the, the poster there, and it had like probably 24 names of God. And it's like um, Everlasting Father, Alpha and Omega, you know, Prince of Peace, all these beautiful names of God. Nowhere on there was the name Jealous that was left off. Why? Because it's not a happy name for God. It feels like a confusing thing to be said about God. But it's really important. Um, when God is described as jealous, it's never dark. Um, there is no darkness in God. Divine jealousy and human jealousy are not the same thing. Rarely, rather, does human jealousy rightly reflect divine jealousy. So God's jealousy is not a jealous rage like the proverb described. It's not merciless. God's jealousy is a protective jealousy. So when his people who are called his special possession, when they belong to him, when he's bought them and purchased them, when his special possession gives themselves over to other gods, God is jealous for what's his. It's divine. It's a right response. In fact, most often, it is compared to the way a husband would feel if his wife broke covenant by finding another lover. God's jealousy is not compared to a king who's worried about losing his throne like Saul. His jealousy is compared to a husband who is jealous for his wife to be faithful, jealous for his wife to keep her promise. And that's in response to actual idolatry, not perceived idolatry, actual unfaithfulness. Not, uh, God isn't suspicious and insecure in his jealousy. God's jealousy flows through his perfect character, so it's always holy and it's always just. And so there's this category of divine jealousy that's about God protecting what belongs to him. But see something, God is never not once in all the Bible described as being envious. There is no category of divine envy because envy is about what you don't have and our God lacks nothing. Psalm 50, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and everything in it is mine. God wants for nothing there is no envy in God. The world and everything in it is his. Okay. Envy is resenting those who have what we want. Uh, jealousy is a defensive reaction to someone who threatens what we want to keep. At their worst, envy deteriorates. Jealousy destroys. Are you with me? Okay. How do we recognize this in our life? Uh, as important as the distinction is, and I think it is, it comes out of our life in similar ways, both jealousy and envy. So how do we see it? Hear this. Both envy and jealousy are about our eyes. Psalm 73, it's one of my favorite psalms. It's a psalm written by a guy named Asaph, who is a worship leader. I hear he was almost as good as Bleeker. The psalm is about his doubt, and we've talked about it as a psalm of doubt, but it is connected to envy in his life. Verses three through five say this. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so he sees something that troubles him. He sees the wicked prospering, and he knows that God has promised to bless the righteous, not the wicked. And so that's confusing, and it is. But notice he doesn't say, I saw and I was confused. He says, I envied them. I wanted their life. I was envious of their prosperity. The life I thought I was going to get with God was the life that they were living, and it eats away at him, his envy. Later in the psalm, he says, I was stricken by it. I was plagued by it. Envy makes the bones rot. And how does it start for him? That envy grows out of something. I was envious when I saw the wicked. He observed their life, and he compared his life to theirs. It's the same with jealousy. Saul sees David being praised. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So he hears his life compared to David and is jealous. Friends, please hear me. For both envy and jealousy, it almost always has a face. It's personal. It starts with our eyes. And, 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 and maybe it's someone that's really close to us. Maybe it's someone that's really distant from us, but it's seeing and comparing our lives to those around us. And this is so ingrained in our culture. It's just so, it, uh, I just don't know if we know how we are doing. I don't know if we know how to feel about our lives until we've compared how we're doing to how everyone else is doing. And when our eyes see someone who has what we want, or our eyes see someone who feels like a threat to what we don't want to lose, and we hold our life up against theirs, out of that comparison, out of that seeing, out of that giving our eyes to another, jealousy grows and envy grows. So I just want to turn this into a few diagnostic questions that I think are helpful, uncomfortable, but helpful. Whose life do you compare your life to? Who has the life you want, friends? Who has the family you want? Who has the career you want? Who has the body you want? The looks you want? Who has the attention you want? Who has the money you want? Who has the house you want? Who has the marriage you want? Who has the relationship with God you want? Who has the gifts and talents that you want? Who feels like a threat to the things that you most want to keep? Did you see a face? Someone or someone's come to mind in all that? Who are your eyes fixed on? Who do your eyes wander towards to tell you how well you are or aren't doing? And out of that kind of wandering eyes is where envy and jealousy grows. It's the seedbed of it. Here's another question. This helps get even underneath some of that. I, I found this to be incredibly convicting. Who in your life are you critical of? You hear something in the psalm that's a feature of both envy and jealousy. They have no pains, he says. They never suffer. Verse 12 says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. One commentator said this, his envy, this is Asaph, his envy distorts reality by making other people appear better off than they actually are. So he assumes things about their life that he doesn't know. Now, uh, he embellishes the ease of their life. Now, Asaph's talking about the wicked, so there's much, 
that he says that's true about them. His critique in many ways is true and right, but the point is this. Envy and jealousy distort how clearly we see other people. And that can come out as believing their life is better than it actually is, filling in the gaps of their life with things that we don't know. It can also come out as needing to see wrong in their life that might not actually be there. Tim Keller, in a sermon on envy, asked his church to consider the relationship between envy and criticism. And he just says this, do you know a person in your life or a person at your work or a person in your church or a person who you know who you just find so irritating? Don't answer out loud. You're hypercritical of them. You find fault with them all the time. They get under your skin. And then he just asks, could it be envy? Think about it. Do you need to see something wrong with them, he asks. And that idea that there's someone in my life who I need to find fault in, someone who I need to see something wrong in, so I criticize what I don't know, I judge even their motivations that I can't see, oh, they just do what they do for attention, they don't really love God, they're just trying to look better than they actually are. Yeah, they have a lot of great things, but it all came easy for them, and I've had to work for everything I have. I find fault. I judge them hypercritical of them. I have to find something that they're doing wrong. Why? Maybe because when I find something wrong with them, then the life they have that I envy doesn't feel so far from mine. So it's this really evil pattern of elevating someone in my mind and then tearing them down with my criticism, all because their life has something that's missing in my life or their life feels like a threat to my life. And so my criticism of them is a coping mechanism under which my envy and jealousy hide. That's a scathing thought. I don't like you is a lot less vulnerable than admitting I really wish I was like you. I wish I had what you do. I resent you for having what I don't. That sounds too ugly. It's easier just to use criticism to chip away at the people we wish we were. Is there anyone in your life? Oh, does wisdom have your attention, friend? Is there anyone in your life that you treat like that? Who are you hypercritical of? Who do you find fault in? Is it a coworker, a friend, a daughter-in-law, a child, a parent, a spouse, a classmate, a roommate? Who in your life do you need to find fault in? You need to find something wrong with. Have you ever thought that underneath that hypercriticism, that underneath that finding fault, what's lurking is unconfessed envy that'll rot your bones or unconfessed jealousy that could turn into rage? One more diagnostic question. You're like, great, another one. Just to help us recognize where this might be in our life. What good in someone else's life would be hard for you to celebrate. Envy and jealousy have a way of twisting the commands of Romans 12.15. I know we all have it memorized, but just to remind you, Romans 12.15 says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. The heart of the Christian, according to the Bible, is the Christian should respond to suffering in someone else's life with sorrow and should respond to blessing in someone's life with celebration. And what did jealousy do to Saul? It twisted that. It reversed it. Everyone is celebrating David and Saul can't. They're celebrating what God has done through David and instead Saul looks with jealousy and instead of rejoicing, Saul rages. And if Saul had been successful in killing David, everyone who sang the song would have been weeping and while everyone's weeping over David's death, what would Saul be doing? 
rejoicing. Same is with, true with envy. Augustine describes envy, St. Augustine describes envy as begrudging God's gifts to others. Thomas Aquinas calls envy sorrow over another's good. Someone rejoices and envy says, don't rejoice, they don't deserve it, you should weep. Someone weeps and envy says, don't weep, they got what they deserve, you should rejoice. Is there anyone whose failure would make you smile? It's an evil thing to rejoice at someone's pain. Is there anyone whose good is hard to celebrate? The good things in their life are hard to rejoice in. Where I've felt this in my own sin, where I've seen this in my life, it's, it's always associated with someone who is celebrated for the things that I want to be celebrated for. Um, if you came up to me after church and you introduced me to your friend and you're like, hey, this is my friend and he is an incredible financial advisor. Like he's great with investments. He can crunch numbers like no one I've ever known. He's the best financial advisor there is. I would be like, great. I wish I had some money that you could invest for me. Maybe someday I will. But those gifts in that guy's life, those would be easy for me to celebrate. You know why? Uh, because I'm not good at any of that. No one is coming to me asking me for financial advice. No one. That's not my thing. And you know what? I don't care. I, I, like, praise God that God gave that guy those gifts. I don't really care to have those gifts. But if you came up to me after church and you introduced me to someone and you said, hey, this is my friend, he's an incredible preacher. Like he can handle the word of God like no one else have ever heard. His jokes always land, which is rare for preachers. <laughs> People respond when he preaches, which is like, I don't know what that's like. And he is the best preacher there is. And if you did that to me, I'd be like, I'm standing right here, like right in front of you. Like it's okay if it's true, but at least wait until I walk away to say all those things, right? Um, that in my flesh would be harder to celebrate. You know why? Be uh, because preaching is a really important part of my life. It's a really important part of who I think I am. It's tied to my vocational calling and how I serve God and what my plan is for the future. And I'm not saying that all of this is right or godly, and this is not as true by God's grace as it used to be, but there's part of me that wants to be celebrated for it and has a hard time when someone else is. And you know what that is? That's dark. That is some combination of jealousy and envy coming out of my life as a failure to rejoice in the good gifts that God has given someone else. It's a form of weeping when Christ would call me to rejoice. I wonder if you'd consider something. There is a version of that conversation in your life as well. And it's probably not around preaching, but it's around the things that you believe make you most valuable. It's around the things that you most treasure or that, you most, that are missing in your life that you most want. And I wonder, brother and sister, do you know your heart well enough to know what it is? Maybe it's around your job, your family, your role as dad or husband, your role as mom or wife, around your gifts, around the pride you take in your intelligence. Maybe it's attention that somebody else gets that you wish you had who could be celebrated in a way that would produce sorrow in you? Where are your eyes? Um, who do you compare your life to? Who are you critical of? Whose good is hard to celebrate? I know it's a lot, but in all of that, if we can be honest, I think we can identify where some of this is in us. How do we turn from it? 
hey, um, don't you want to turn from it? Does wisdom have your attention? Like, think about how joyless this life is, this kind of life, where we're perpetually looking around at others and resenting them for having what we don't, perpetually threatened by other people's lives because we don't want to lose the things that we hold on to, where we find fault in others all the time and are hypercritical and respond to good in someone's life with envy and respond to pain in some people's life with a concealed celebration. Gosh, that just sounds like a life where the flowers are dying and the color is turning gray and the branches are getting really brittle. Envy makes the bones rot. Who can survive jealousy? What do we do? We're finally to Psalm 23, 17 and 18. Such a gift of a psalm, or Proverbs 23, 17 through 18. I'm sure Psalm 23 is great too. <laughs> Let not your heart envy sinners. That's what we're talking about, right? But continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. In this section, it's a father speaking to a son. My son, let not your heart envy sinners. And then we get the word but. It's a contrast word. It's a turn word. How do we turn from envy and jealousy? There's two parts. But continue in the fear of the Lord. What does the fear of the Lord have to do with envy and jealousy? If you remember, fearing the Lord is all about what captures your heart, what has the most weight, most gravity in your life. If you remember when we talked about this, fearing the Lord is not being afraid of life and ignoring God. Fearing the Lord is not being afraid of God and running from him. Fearing the Lord is being so taken with the greatness and grace of God that we move towards him in all of our life. It's treasuring God. It's revering God. It's living every moment of our life in light of the reality of a beautiful God. So what's really hard to hear, but really important, is that envy and jealousy are windows into the idols that have replaced God in our life. It's a dark desire that can show us what we value above God. Asaph's envy took him into questioning whether the worship of God that he was in charge of was even worth it. Verse 13, he says, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. He's describing the way God's people worship God and relate to God, and he's asking, what's the point? What's the point? If these other people are getting the life I want, or if these other people are getting the life I don't think they deserve, is my life even worth it? And Longman in his book says this, jealousy is a desire to protect our beloved possession. Envy is desire to acquire the jewel of our eye. Beloved possession, the jewel of our eye. Those are worship words. It is good and right to desire good things. It is good and right to what good things that we don't have. It is good and right to want to keep good things that we don't want to lose. All that's good. But when those become the things we fear and we treasure and we revere as greater than God, good things become God things, and that always hurts us. It always fails us. It never works. So if envy starts with the eyes and jealousy starts with the eyes, when wisdom says don't envy sinners, continue in the fear of the Lord, he's saying give your eyes back to God. Fix your eyes on God. When others get what you want, when something you love feels like it's slipping, keep your eyes on God. Why? Because it is the only sure thing in this life. Goodness. Uh, in Jesus, the love of God is not something we want but don't yet have. 
It's something that we have in abundance, and in Jesus, it's something that we can never lose. Matthew 27, 18 says that it was out of envy that Jesus was crucified. Envy and jealousy at its worst against Jesus, rotting and raging against our perfect Savior, and it poured out on him on the cross. And you know what? Jesus could have stood before jealousy. He could have survived it. He alone could have met the force of jealous rage with his righteous power and survived. And instead, in love, he allowed himself to be consumed by it. He allowed his body to rot and waste away. And on the cross, he died the death that we deserve to die, died for our envy, died for our jealousy that he might pay for sin and in his resurrection defeat death. And our resurrected king offers love and grace and mercy and life. And what we need, friends, in our envy and jealousy is to give our eyes, to fix our eyes on Jesus who alone is the treasure we most want and the treasure we can never lose. What we see Asaph do in Psalm 73 is he goes into the temple and he gives his eyes back to God. And as a result of that, he says this. It's one of the most beautiful verses in all the scripture. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a turn starts with envy of the wicked. It's rotting me away. I don't even know if I believe this anymore. And it ends with a satisfaction, a confident contentment in a holy God. What changed? He took his eyes off of others and he fixed his eyes on God's glory. And we need that, friends. We need that. We need to give our eyes. We need to set our eyes on a beautiful Savior who has given what we most need. And he secures that so that we'll never have to fear the loss of it. And then this, we'll end here, and, and this will lead us into a, a time of prayer. I'm so grateful for the next line. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Okay, Jamin, so what do I do? Like, there are good things that I want, and it's not wrong for me to want them. Uh, there are good things that I want to keep, and it's not wrong for me to want to protect them. What do I do? It doesn't say... Continue in the fear of the Lord and ignore the things in your life that are painful. Continue in the fear of the Lord and ignore the things that you want but don't have. Continue in the fear of the Lord and ignore the things you're scared to lose. It doesn't say that because all of that is so real. Much of that is God-given desire. I'm just so mindful of the many of us where envy and jealousy in our life, it might be attached to real pain in our life and suffering in our life and disappointment in our life and discouragement in our life and fear in our life. And there is ample space made by God for us to be honest about fear and disappointment and discontentment and grief and pain. It's not instead of being jealous and envious, be happy with the life you have. It's instead of being jealous and envious, hope in God, he holds your future. Surely he holds your future. I wonder if you would just bow your heads with me and pray. And We can... Consider together before God what it looks like for us to give our eyes back to him. I think part of what God is doing is protecting us around those parts of our life that long for good things that we don't have. God's not trying to kill that desire. God is trying to protect us from it darkening in us in a way that kills us. 
God's not saying it's wrong for you to want to defend the things you most love in your life. He's not trying to kill that desire. God's simply saying the more defensive you get, the less control you realize you have. Trust me with your future. Uh, Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, I just believe your church exists to bring change in the life of your sons and daughters. The greatest prayer you could answer this morning is that we would all leave together looking a little more like Jesus than when we came in. You want to do a work in our soul, in our heart, in our life, in our relationships. Give us the courage and the humility to follow our eyes, to be honest about where I, I have, I'm so obsessed with the good that somebody else has and it's rotting away at me. I'm so angry and defensive at the person who feels like a threat to what I want to protect and it's consuming me. Could we, God, in, in honesty and in trust of you, confess that, Lord? Maybe there's someone who has been the object of our hypercriticism that we need to go to and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Would we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And when all of that start, God, because we did like Asaph and we went back into the sanctuary, we gave you our eyes, God, turned back to you in a vision for a beautiful Jesus, a vision for a loving Savior, a vision for a bloody cross and an empty tomb settled in our soul in a way that drove envy and jealousy far from us and replaced it with a confident satisfaction that you love us and you always will, and we're going to be okay. Help us. We need you. We love you. Amen.